Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max. And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. So is cabbage really your favorite vegetable? It is. I mean, it's funny because people ask me that and um, (laughs) and it is. I love red cabbage. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Nerdette. I'm Greta Johnson, and that was Abra Behrens. She's a farmer and a chef, and she recently made this amazing new cookbook called Roughage. It was listed as one of the best spring cookbooks by both The New York Times and Bon Appetit, and it is gorgeous. The whole idea is that you could go to your farmer's market or the grocery store or whatever and just, like, see what looks great. And even if you have no idea what to do with that, like, kohlrabi or whatever it might be, you can take it home, look it up in this book, and get a bunch of great ideas for what to do. Give me veg, give me veg, give me vegetables. They're the key to one's longevity. Give me veg, give me veg, give me So we're going to talk to her about the cookbook and her inspiration. And of course, she will explain her obsession with cabbage. It's the most utilized vegetable. So that feel like that makes it my favorite. I also just love, I will buy one and sometimes it stays in my fridge for like a week or two weeks and it's just fine. And it's just hanging out and it's ready to be like conscripted into service when it needs to be. Um, and whereas I do love, you know, I love things like asparagus or fava beans or, um, you know, the first squashes or the first tomatoes or shishito peppers, but they they don't feel... They feel like friends who come into town for a long weekend and it's so nice to see them. But then it's like, you know, my cabbage is like my, you know, work wife or something that I like. <laughs> I can't get through the cabbage day without gets you her. through it. Yeah, exactly. Wow. That's so, you have such a beautiful way of thinking of vegetables. <laughs> Thanks. Maybe it's a little crazy. Like, uh, there's just these little <laughs> characters that come through. It's like, I love anthropomorphizing stuff. And so uh, it's probably an extension of that. No, I think that's really cool. So this cookbook is gorgeous. I love it for a great many reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm really curious why you decided to call it roughage, because I feel like that's not a word I hear very often, but is kind of delightful and strange. Thanks. I mean, that was actually sort of the goal is delightful and a little strange. Uh, and it comes from my, you know, my dad would often say something like, you know, that I, I kind of added, you you got to get your roughage. Or um, really the, the true story is that he came to one of the first farm dinners that I put on up in northern Michigan, and I was asking him for really specific feedback on it to try to make it as good as it could be. And um, <laughs> his response was, I don't know, Abra, it's, I mean, yeah, it was all good, but it's a lot of vegetables. And I was like, well, we're a vegetable farm dad. Like, that's the point. And he was like, yeah, no, I know. Just it's a lot of roughage. Maybe you could serve some bread. And I was like, okay, noted. Bread service. Um, and so it was kind of that sort of tongue in cheek. and But getting at this idea that I think a lot of people think that eating vegetables um, is sort of drudgery to get to your cake or your T-bone steak or whatever it is. Um, and wanting to kind of flip that on its head. I don't consider myself like a cookbook scholar by any Mm. means, but I feel like what you've done here with Roughage reminds me of a couple of my other favorite books about cooking, which aren't even necessarily 
cooking books as mm. much as they're books about how to make delicious things what like uh, salt, fat, acid, heat, oh, yeah. obviously. That's an honor to be in the same breath um, as that lady. And Everlasting Meal, I think, mm. by Tamara Adler, mm-hmm. because I feel like it's more like, yes, you have recipes in this book, but it's also about, and you even said it at one point pretty explicitly, like this should be a toolbox for you, mm, you know? Yeah. And so much of what you're doing in this book, too, is offering variations on things just to show how different one kind of like standard structure can be depending on what Mm. the different pieces are that you're adding in. Yeah, that was the other like really the the part of it that I hoped would come through. And and part of that came from um, I was really inspired by my friend Elise Bergman is a fashion designer and she um, a while ago was designing these dresses that are the same shape and then the way that you wrap the straps they can become like, you know, a strapless dress or a jumper or you know, a dress that gets twisted up or whatever. Um, And she's going to be thrilled by that description. (laughs) Um, And so, you know, but I remember buying one of these dresses from her and seeing the tag that it came with had like a watercolored image of the dress one way. And then it had these pencil sketches of all of the different ways that the dress could be. And I realized that I can't do that for clothes or for painting a room or like things like that. But I can do it with food. Whereas if you, you know, oh, I didn't buy the feta. Okay, well, what else do you have in your fridge? You can probably swap these out or, you know, that these structures are very much the same, but what you dress them up in is different. And so wanting to try to give a little window into that, the way that my brain works in that way. Yeah. Can you give an example? I think the one you use in the book is about beet salads, Mm -hmm. your different options. Can you kind of walk us through what the different, like what your first recipe is and then what the variations could look like? Yeah. So the beet chapter is a really great sort of stand-in for the whole book because it has, um, so the book is organized alphabetically by vegetable and um, then each uh, chapter is a vegetable. It opens with a little essay and then kind of a how-to guide of, you know, how to buy it, how to store it, different notes on it, things like that. And then you get into the preparation techniques. So for me, what I was realizing is that we work with these same vegetables year in and year out at different points in the season. And you have sort of a limited number of preparation techniques, but it's the permutations of that. And then the other flavors that kind of hang on that structure, like I was saying, of ingredient and technique that allow for the creativity and the flow. So in the um, beet chapter, the first way to prepare the beets is usually how I do it, which is steam roasting. So there you take beets, um, give them a wash, chuck them into a pot or like a like a roasting dish, a little bit of oil and salt and pepper. And then the water that's clinging to it will you cover it with tinfoil and the water that's clinging to it will create steam. So they cook faster than if you were to just roast them on their own. But you don't lose some of that flavor that you would in boiling where the water is leaching that out. Um, and they you it's all all inactive time. They're just sitting in the oven. And then you take them out, rub off the skins, and you have these steam roasted beets that are totally tender. And the recipe in the book is with um, smoked white fish and sour cream and dill and sunflower seeds. It's a very like Eastern European mm-hmm. sort of idea. And then, but that salad, if you don't change anything except for the flavors, it's structurally the same if you were to take the white fish and the sour cream and the dill out and replace it with something like feta and oranges and pistachios and mint 
or like in the fall, you know, have apples and parsley and cheddar, or, you know, you could add a bunch of grains to it and, and make like a grain bowl from it. So it's really nothing on the beets is changing. It's just what's going with it. And then the second preparation technique in that chapter is you take those same beets and blend them into a puree with some olive oil. And then there's a recipe for um, dress using that puree to dress pasta with uh, pickled golden raisins and poppy seeds, again, very Eastern European. Um, but then you could also use that same puree. Uh, you could use it to bind a risotto. So that like leap from going from binding pasta to binding a risotto is not too far flung. But then you could also use that same puree to make like a soup, like thin it down and make a version of borscht or put it on. Um, I've been using those purees a lot on sandwiches to replace Ooh, like the mayo because it's yum. kind of juicy. Yeah. And so you could take like something like a sandwich with um, the beet puree and arugula and goat cheese. And you have a sandwich that's very evocative of, you know, Alice Waters is famous beet and goat cheese salad at Chez Panisse, but it's in a sandwich form, you know, so this kind of like moves it around in this way. That's so cool. It's funny, too, because I feel like, I mean, you've talked about structure. You've talked about mm-hmm. kind of having set steps and needing order. Mm-hmm. But like it's still so creative mm-hmm. within that structure. I think it's really cool. Thank you. I um, Yeah, it's I remember I can't remember where this was, but I was talking with someone once and they were saying how it's a lot easier for them to write haiku poetry than free verse because you have yes. this structure that you're yes. playing on and against. Um, whereas free verse, it's like, oh, it can be whatever you yeah, want. Yeah, that's like, too, too many, many options. options. <laughs> yeah, totally. yeah. And so and that's where local seasonal comes in for me, too, is that, you know, if if you could put anything onto a menu, that's so it's like a Pandora's box for me. But yeah. if you're dealing with local produce that comes in and out of season, you have that. You have your pantry basics, all those things. It kind of it solves some of the variables. So then you can put your energy into you know those last few that are still there. Totally. Well, and that's kind of why you know you described that the book is kind of just an A to Z f- with mm-hmm. of vegetables. So that the idea is you could go to a farmer's market mm-hmm. and look around and think, man, this asparagus looks amazing. Yeah, and then get it and come home and look up asparagus and you've got like a number of pretty great options that you can work with. Yeah, that's exactly the goal. And for me, it's, you know, farmer's markets, CSAs, or just going to the grocery store. Um, you know, I it's it's tricky, I think, because sometimes the local seasonal world gets pigeonholed as sort of an elitist thing, which is frustrating to me. I, I understand it, but I mean, that's a long conversation. Well, yeah, I mean, let's talk first just, I mean, maybe it's self-explanatory, but what you mean by local seasonal is oh, essentially yeah. things from farm Farms that are nearby Mm -hmm. that are in season right now. Mm -hmm. And yeah, I mean, it's interesting because in some ways this shouldn't seem like a revolutionary way of Mm -hmm. cooking at all, but it kind of is. I mean, a lot of places, especially with your like big industrial supermarket, the idea was that you can have whatever you want whenever you want it, Mm -hmm. which means strawberries in January or you know, tomatoes in March, right? Yeah. And I don't want to poo-poo anybody buying those things because I, I firmly believe that if you are going to the grocery store, if you buy asparagus in January, strawberries in January, I think it's better that you buy that than buy, you know, a TV dinner. And I think it's better to buy the TV dinner if you're going to sit with your family and eat it than it is to like buy a bag of chips and eat it by yourself in your car. I think that there's, <laughs> which I, I have also <laughs> been there regularly done. Um, and so I just, I think it's, I wanted to create a book that um, could meet people where they were with how they source their produce. Um, I There are a couple of essays in the book about how produce is different when it's coming from farms or when it's coming from a farmer's market or a CSA, and I think it's worth chasing that. But if you're not there yet, that's okay. Des légumes, des légumes, des légumes, c'est clair, la santé est une priorité. 
After the break, Abra explains this amazing ratio that I'm definitely going to take into my daily life, which is the fight-to-delight ratio. Yes, you could spend six hours making the mufalada from the Joe Beef cookbook, which is amazing, but also is like a three-day process. For me, the fight-to-delight ratio in that is diminished. <laughs> but for some people, they really delight in that. So it's like there's space for everyone to do things as they as they choose. You're listening to Nerdette. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Thanh Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, And listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. So there's this line from this book that I loved so much. I'm going to read it to you. Mm -hmm. It says, it's true. You're in charge, not the cauliflower. Mm -hmm. It's also true that by playing to the inherent strengths of a particular ingredient, you can coax out the most delight with the least amount of fight. Mm. I just thought that was so beautiful. It seems to me too, like that's really the philosophy that you're trying to embody with this book in terms of encouraging people to like take charge and feel empowered to do what they want, Mm -hmm. but also like bring the best out of whatever it is that they have in their cooking. Yeah. It's like, um, there's a, my friend was just telling me about, um, a Native American tradition of the the sacred agreement between a farmer and the seeds and that, you know, it's like you're agreeing to provide the seed with what it needs and it's going to grow and create the food. Um, and I think that that's also true in a kitchen where, yes, if you have this cauliflower, I've been surprised by how many people are like, I just feel so intimidated by a leek or by mm. a beets. You know, beets are like the number one questionable vegetable that we get or questions about the vegetable. Questionable, questionable vegetable. vegetable. Love yeah. that. <laughs> um, yeah, they're very, they're very, rude. <laughs> they're sketchy. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, thinking about that, I mean, like, well, it's just a head of cauliflower. I mean, just cut it up, you know, yeah, and it's like, go for it. Yeah, exactly. And also, vegetables tend to be less expensive than something like meat. So it's not like you're going to sure. like ruin it. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, the more that you start to, kind of read the landscape of your food, the more you can start to play to its inherent strengths. So if that's as simple as tasting a tomato before you chop it up for a salad, if it tastes bland, know that you might want to let it sit with some salt for a little bit. But if it's super ripe and flavorful, then maybe you don't want to even dress it with anything. Figure out what's happening with the vegetable, how it's tasting, what you want out of it, and then either push it towards what you want or change your tack and kind of absorb it in the way that it is best going to be used. It's like just playing to its strengths. Yeah. So I want to get into some more specifics around this cookbook. Mm -hmm. You sort of hinted earlier at the idea of like stuff you should have in your pantry. Mm -hmm. And I think that's such a great thing for especially people who are sort of new to figuring out how to cook at home. Mm -hmm. 
because it does make such a big difference if you're not like, well, I can't do this because I have to go to the store and I'm not going to the store. Right. Yeah. You know? Um, yeah. So I realized as I was thinking through the book that there are a handful of things um, that I generally have on hand in my kitchen. And sometimes that is things as like, you know, vinegar and olive oil and stuff like that. It's also often like dried pasta, um, you know, beans, wild rice, stuff like that, that you can kind of whip up into a base that the vegetables can then sort of stand upon. Um, but then it's also things like having some cheeses in your fridge and, and kind of having this like bedrock uh, that then you can kind of pull from however you need to. Um and that doesn't have to be fancy stuff. So one of the things in the um, cookbook I really tried to do is keep that pantry circumscribed because I was, at the time of writing it, I was moving between um, a neighborhood where we had to drive to a grocery store mm-hmm. in Chicago or um, living in a small town in rural Michigan where they don't have the breadth of ingredients that are available in Chicago. And so wanting to create a book where if that were the case or anywhere in between, you'd be okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there are things like smoked white fish, which is very, um, it's very integral to northern Michigan's food cuisine and uh, to some other parts of the country, but less so in Chicago. But you could always substitute canned tuna. In most places, you can get canned tuna. Mm-hmm. Um, and so wanting to kind of have those things. And, you know, and honestly, sometimes I get home and truly don't have anything in my fridge, like anything fresh. And so it's like, well, I could go out. But I do have this ricotta and this pasta and a little bit of chili oil. And, like, that's enough, you know, to make a dinner. And then it's like you really look through your fridge. You are out of most things. So then you can feel good about going to the store the next time and get all the fun stuff again. (laughs) Yeah, totally. So I think the first recipe in this book is mayonnaise, right? Oh, yeah. It's the adventures in seasoning. Yeah. Um, So talk. why did you decide to – so tell me about the recipe and then I'll ask you questions about it. So this was uh, real life making its way onto the page. So when I moved back to Chicago, after uh, cooking school, I was with my now husband for the first time in several months. And I was like, you know what? I'm going to make you, I'm, I'm a chef now. So oh. I'm going to make you a fancy breakfast. Uh-huh. We're going to make hollandaise and have some poached eggs and like blah, blah, blah. Oh my gosh. And so I made this hollandaise and it looked beautiful. It was like the perfect color and everything looked great. And then I like spooned it over the eggs and it tasted like garbage. And it oh, was because no. there was no salt and there was no acid in it. I was so fixated on the emulsification. Um, That's funny because I've made good tasting hollandaise that's like all super curdly yeah you know (laughs) it's both ends um and so i was like oh so i added some salt to it tasted it it tasted better and then i was like "Ah, it's still kind of flat so i squeezed some lemon on it and it tasted so good and it was such a revelation to me and so now every time i do a cooking class um or work with a new cook i we go through that process where you make a mayonnaise mayonnaise is easier to make than hollandaise and so um, (laughs) make a mayonnaise uh with no salt and no acid in it whatsoever and then taste it. And you make the mayonnaise with egg and all and oil. And oil, yep, yeah, egg and oil. So when you taste it, um, it gets it just tastes very flabby, very one note, like yeah. not nothing special. And then you add the salt to it and it suddenly tastes good. And you can like taste some of the egg and you can taste the richness of the oil and all those things. And then you add either a little bit of lemon or a little bit of vinegar to it and whiz it up and it tastes like it goes to the rafters. And you suddenly really taste that egg and you really taste the marriage between those things. And 
And so um, that's, for me, one of the foundations of, you know, salt tends to unlock the flavors and acid tends to lift it up. Um, And so wanting to give people sort of a sense of that so that then, again, getting back to you're in charge, you can then assess, you know, and if you make something and say your tomatoes, you didn't taste your tomatoes in advance, they weren't very ripe. And so they taste a little bit flat. Like you have a sense of like, oh, if I add a little bit of salt or a little bit of acid, I can lift that up. And so giving people that those sort of foundational tools, which I think, I mean, obviously salt, acid, fat, heat is, uh, you know, a, a real like ground zero for that sort of education. One thing we like to do on Nerdette is ask our guests to give our listeners homework. Oh, right. Uh And I feel like this could be a very fun opportunity, especially for people who are maybe like the reticent chefs out Uh there, you know, who like enjoy eating delicious things, but just are kind of intimidated about stuff that involves too many bowls or (laughs) you know what I mean? I think my homework would be to have a listener go go to the market without a shopping list uh, and and buy just look at things not not trying to figure out what you're going to make out of it but just simply look at it and what excites you when you're there and then get it home and then figure out what you want to do with it um, I think that that's a really good practice to get into and it feels it feels crazy at first because it's like but I'm buying this stuff and it's like is this the same as buying like the hot pink jumpsuit where I'm like, oh, I'll definitely wear that. <laughs> it brings me joy. <laughs> totally. I want yeah. to. Um, so I think that would be a good homework thing. And I think also the flip side to that would be to at some point choose to not go to the store. And so when you're on your way home and you're on the train and you're like, oh, what's in the fridge? There's probably nothing. I should stop at the store on my way home and get something. More times than people think there's enough in your fridge to make something out of it. And I think that that can be a really fun challenge of being like, okay, it's like, what's that show, Chopped or whatever, (laughs) where you get the box? like, here it is. Yep. And so you're like, okay, I've got one stem of broccoli, one carrot, and this leftover rice from Chinese takeout. Like, I can make something out of this. And I think that that, both of those challenges, I think, activate, at least for me, a level of creativity around food that has had lasting uh, ramifications. Seems like too strong of a word, but anyway, that's the word I chose. (laughs) That's the word that's here. That's great. I mean, I feel like in both of those instances, they stress me out just a little Mm -hmm. bit, which I think means they would actually be really good for me. (laughs) Yeah, that that, uh, embracing that little bit of stress, you know, like if it feels like you're flying out of an airplane, maybe dial it back Right, right, right. Yeah. But yeah, Mm -hmm. like maybe we don't need this much order in our lives. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) Abra, thank you so much. This was really fun. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. And thanks for the work that you're doing. The podcast is always so good and regularly on my list. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Yay. The show is produced by me, Greta Johnson, along with Justin Bull. Our co-creator is Trisha Bobita, and our executive producer is Brendan Banaszak. Nerdette is supported in part by the Alfred P. Sloan Foundation, enhancing public understanding of science and technology in the modern world. We have literally hundreds of episodes. One that you would especially like if you dug this episode was our interview with Samin Nosrat. She has this amazing cookbook called Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Pocket Casts, or wherever you get your pod. We have a newsletter. It's pretty fun. I usually put in like something to read, something to watch, something to eat. It's like the introvert's guide to the good life. You can get it when you go to our Facebook page and click the blue sign up button. Our theme music is by Poddington Bear. Do your homework. That's it. Nerdette is supported by the Sympathizer podcast from HBO. 
Join host Philip Nguyen in conversation with the cast, crew, and author Viet Tan Nguyen as they discuss the making of this historic HBO original limited series. Stream new episodes of HBO's The Sympathizer Sundays exclusively on Max, and listen to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts.